gums bleeding. Friday evening, it was all about eating. When I became a teen, it was all about beefing. Now I'm ready for the world. Trying to sink my teeth in. Hey guys, welcome to episode 55. I'm coming back at you with another episode just a week after publishing the last one. And if you have been listening regularly this season, you'll know that's not normal for us right now. We're doing bi-weekly episodes this season so far. Uh, But I wanted to bring you this special bonus episode because it's National Eating Disorders Awareness Week and I'm an official partner of the week this year. So I'm helping get the word out about eating disorder awareness. Um, So this year's theme for NIDA Week is Three Minutes Can Save a life. And they're trying to raise awareness of this great screening tool they developed because screening for an eating disorder is the first step in getting treatment. And often people don't even get screened. Uh, They kind of get missed by their medical providers. And so, you know, if you think you might have an issue with food, a great first step is to get screened. To do that, you can go to needawareness.org and uh, take a special screening there that they have. And it really does just take three minutes. And it can tell you if your relationship to food seems problematic and if maybe you'd benefit from getting help. It also offers resources for you to find help in your area. So the National Eating Disorders Association is often the place that I tell people to start if they're looking for treatment because it it has a great helpline where trained volunteers will answer the phone and help you connect with treatment providers in your area or figure out the best uh, treatment approach for you. So That is my mission today, is to uh, help raise awareness of eating disorders. And so I had planned for this special episode just to do a solo episode talking about my own history of misdiagnosis and getting missed by medical providers and how common that is for people who have eating disorders. You know, for a doctor to say, oh, your weight's fine, don't worry about it, or you couldn't possibly have an issue with food, you're not skinny enough, you know, which is basically a message that a lot of people get. Uh, from their providers, unfortunately, because many providers are not educated about eating disorders. Um, And this is true of the general public as well. So, you know, well-meaning people in your life might have said that to you. So anyway, I was going to talk all about that by myself. And then I just so happened to have a call scheduled today to record an episode with Nicole Rohr Stefani of the website Body Boop. And I was planning to post it down the line in sort of our bi-weekly schedule. But then we had such a great talk and we actually ended up getting into all these issues of misdiagnosis and how eating disorders can go unrecognized. And so I thought it was a great episode to post for Nita Week. So I'm bringing it to you now. So we'll be talking to Nicole in just a few minutes. And I can't wait for you guys to hear that conversation. She's so great and has such great perspective on recovery and body image. But first, I want to point you to a couple of great resources for helping improve your relationship with food. The first is my free quiz to assess your relationship with food and see how healthy it is. I'll send you your results via email along with more than a dozen personalized, individualized tips to help you make peace with food wherever you might fall on the spectrum right now. Take the quiz and get your results today at christyharrison.com quiz. That's christyharrison.com quiz. The second resource I want to share is my Intuitive Eating Online course. It's a 13-week program that I created to help you work through all the principles of intuitive eating in depth and really demystify and troubleshoot the common areas where people tend to get stuck. I'll show you how to recognize the diet mentality, even in its subtle forms, and how to start substituting healthy thoughts instead. I'll share my secrets to making food and exercise choices from a place of self-care rather than self-control. And I'll teach you how to navigate emotional eating and how to stop alternating between restricting and overeating. And so, so, so much more. Several participants have shared that the course has helped them make peace with their quote off-limits foods already. As one participant put it after trying one of their quote unquote bad foods, I felt free, sweet, sweet freedom. Why was I so afraid of this food? I doubt I'll feel the need to buy another package when this one's gone, but just knowing it's off the bad list tastes and feels like a huge epiphany. What a moment of power. Participants are also having major revelations about how the diet mentality is hanging on in hidden ways. As one participant put it, before doing this module, I really thought I had given up the diet mentality. Now I realize that although I consciously reject dieting, I still have plenty of work to do towards accepting myself as I am. It was great. It really helped me identify what I need to work on by bringing it to my full awareness. And yet another participant shared this beautiful revelation she had in the course. My worth is not my weight or my looks, but my heart, mind, and soul. 
I need to trade in my self-judgment for self-love and compassion. It feels impossible some days, but I'm going to do my best. I deserve it. If you'd like to join others on this intuitive eating journey and have some beautiful revelations of your own, go to christyharrison.com course to learn more and sign up. That's christyharrison.com course. And then finally, if you like the podcast and want to help us reach more people who need to hear the body positive message, you can leave us a great review on iTunes. And I really appreciate people who've left reviews so far. Just open up iTunes on your computer, type in Food Psych to the search bar, click the result that comes up under podcasts, and then go to the ratings and reviews tab. There you can leave a rating and reviews, sharing what you love about the podcast. And I'm so, so grateful for these nice reviews because they help bring us up in the ratings and help more people find these positive messages. Okay, so without further ado, let's go talk to Nicole Rohr Stefani. I spoke with her via Skype from her home in Chicago. So tell me about your relationship to food growing up. Um, I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, my mother is Lebanese and Australian, mm. um, and I grew up living with her. So, um, you know, it was interesting. We had a lot of Middle Eastern food, and then a lot of processed food. My mom was Mm. a single mom in school, um, working full time. So, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of time for home cooked meals. But when she did, um, it was usually Lebanese food, which was awesome. Um, So, you know, I didn't cook a lot, but um, my mom did when she had time. Mm -hmm. And then you guys kind of fended for yourself when you were when she wasn't cooking or? Yeah, yeah. I think just with her busy schedule after my parents got divorced, it was just whatever was in the house. Um, A lot of frozen pizzas and Mm -hmm. that's not to knock on my mom, but you know, she was working hard to support us. So totally. Yeah. So food couldn't be the priority all the time. Right. Mm -hmm. And so when you were, you know, eating that stuff growing up, do you feel like you had a good relationship to it? Were you, did you think about food much or was it pretty intuitive? You know, when I was really little, um, I loved food. Um, my nickname was Breadhead. Ah. I just, um, I, I really found joy eating. And I, I, you know, I knew what I liked and I requested it often. And it was mostly, you know, cheese and bread and comfort food. Mm-hmm. Um, and growing up in the South, that was, <laughs> that was available. Um, but as I got older, um, I think I started to notice that my shape was different than other girls I was in school with. Mm. And my mom, while she wasn't like out there with the dieting, my mom has a very kind of like um, picky way of eating. You know, mm. she eats little bits at a time. And I think I really was quite influenced by that, um, you know, and compared her way of eating to how I was eating and like, you know, I was always like ravenously eating, you know, as a kid. Mm -hmm. Um, and so when I got to like my preteens, um, that's, you know, when my concerns kind of started showing up, I ran into some trouble with depression, which runs in our family on both sides. Mm -hmm. Um, and the eating disorder kind of, kind of ensued after that. But like as a small child, it was so intuitive and it was so full of joy and, um, you know, I really was able to, to act as a kid does. Yeah. Oh, that's so lovely mm-hmm. to have that experience at some point in your life. You know, the eating disorder started, you said, in adolescence. Mm-hmm. I was, uh, well, it was at the end of middle school. I was about mm. to go into high school. Um, you know, and I, I remember I had a, a stomach flu, like a legitimate sn- stomach flu and weekend And that was like a huge trigger that kind of like Mm. set it off. And I, you know, I think about that, that day and that moment often because it's, it stands out so clearly on my mind where I started to think like, how could I avoid certain things? And how could I, you know, I started like, um, strategizing, (laughs) you know, in my mind, how, how I could change things to influence my size and my shape. Um, it was a, I mean, it's a very specific moment. I know the room I was in, I know, you know, the bed I was laying in. Wow. Uh, It's, you know, it's very clear to me. So had you thought about that stuff at all before? Or was that literally the first time it popped into your head? I had been teased a lot um, Hmm. in middle school for being fat. So, I mean, it was on my mind, but I don't think I ever connected the dots. Mm -hmm. Um, 
until that moment where like, oh, you know, like I, what I do day to day could maybe like stop the teasing mm. uh, or, you know, make me look like the other girls. Right. And so the the stomach flu kind of gave you that idea. It was like, mm-hmm. oh, I don't have to eat or something. Exactly. Yeah. It was like, um, oh, you know, this is uncomfortable, but, you know, I could make it through a day. Mm-hmm. And then I could make it through a day kind of went to I could make it through a week. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it, it just um, it saddens me to think about that moment, too, because it was such a shift from that joy that I spoke about earlier yeah. to um, being really tortured. Yeah, it sounds like it. Mm-hmm. And the teasing really played a role, it sounds like, too. Mm-hmm. And my poor mom, like, I just remember her so uh, vividly defending me. Um, mm. You know, I had some neighborhood kids that would tease me a lot while we were outside playing. And she would, like, I mean, like, go outside and be like, do you understand that your, like, your comments can like lead to people having eating disorders and like they didn't oh, even wow. know what, they didn't even know what eating disorders were yeah. you know those those little boys but i can so clearly remember her going you know this is how people end up with anorexia wow um and she was ju- you know she was just trying so hard to to make it stop for me and yeah. just make me like you know really embrace who i was and love who i was did she say that after you already started to develop signs of anorexia or was that sort of like prescient almost it was before strangely um and when I think back about that now I'm like I didn't even know what that was then you know Mm -hmm. I remember her saying that and being like what you know because I was like (laughs) I was like nine or ten you Uh know and then the eating disorder really didn't start until like 13 or 14 wow yeah, mm-hmm. so you finally kind of discovered what that was later. but Yeah, yeah, but that memory is, like, it's interesting that she used those words. And, you know, now I'm obviously very familiar. Mm-hmm. So since she was kind of attuned to it, did she pick up on it quickly when you developed the eating disorder? Or did it kind of stay underground for a while? I, well, in terms of exercise, I think mm. she was very in tune because like, obviously you have to find part of your day to, to fit that in. Right. Um, it's a little harder to hide behaviors like that than it is with food. Um, you know, so I requested, you know, a gym membership for the first time and, mm. you know, I enrolled in athletic activities at my high school and I'd never had an interest in that before. You know, I was kind of a bookworm growing up. I, you know, she um, – so she was like maybe part of her thought, oh, you know, this is a newfound interest. She's trying to be active. Um, but then when it goes to spending so much time and taking over your life, I think the exercise was more of an indicator to her that there was a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I, you know, I really think she like tried to encourage me to – um, pursue healthier habits with food and exercise for, you know, maybe like six months or so before she started taking me to a, a specialist, um, really realizing I had a problem at that moment in time. Yeah. So did like the stuff that she was trying, you just refused to implement or? Yeah. Well, Mm -hmm. and I just think adolescents with eating disorders, you know, if it's, if something's been triggered and you're set down that path, like <laughs> teenagers are stubborn anyway. Oh, yeah. Um, I just think there was like there was a part of me that was not wanting to give up the eating disorder. But there was also that like normal teenage part of me that was like bucking the system and what right. want to do what my mom was telling me to do. Right. I know it's so complicated at that age because it mm-hmm. really does get into that like normal sense of teenage rebellion and you know, desire to differentiate. And so your mom was giving you good advice. It sounds like she was really concerned about you for the right reasons, but that was something to rebel against too. That's right. Yeah. And I, you know, I think with parents, it's like when parents are in denial, gosh, I understand why you would want to be in denial. It's like such an awful thing to have to wrap your head around that your child's going through. So for those few months or six months that, you know, there wasn't much acknowledgement or talk about what was going on with me. Like, you know, maybe my mom was seeing if it would pass or if it was a phase or, yeah. um, but there comes a certain point with anorexia in particular where the weight loss is just too drastic. You know, your vital signs 
are getting messed up and Mm -hmm. just for medical purposes, like I had, I had to see a specialist. Right. Yeah. So it went on long enough that that happened. Mm -hmm. And so then what happened when you went to see the specialist? Um, you know, I stayed with, in Birmingham, there weren't a lot of options then. This was Mm -hmm. in, I think it was like 1999, 2000, Mm -hmm. but I was a freshman in high school. So for the rest of high school, um, I kind of went up and down with my eating disorder. I saw a therapist and I saw this medical eating disorder specialist and they were really the only ones in town that, that did that sort of work. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I tried to go off to college um, and it was a massive failure with my health. I mean, mm-hmm. I just, I don't blame anybody really, but we didn't set up the resources. I went to University of Missouri and we did not set up the resources there that I had previously had in Birmingham. So I went from having this this network of support, my family nearby, to being by myself, and I just crashed and burned. Um, So that's when I went to treatment for the first time. Yeah, so like a treatment center. Mm -hmm. What was that like? You know, I've been to – I was hospitalized once um, in Birmingham, but I've been to a residential treatment center twice. Mm -hmm. um, And both times were very different. The first time – was for anorexia. And it was um, a lot more behavioral. So it was at the Renfrew Center. It was in Coconut Creek, Florida. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we did a lot of movement therapy and art therapy. And um, you were allowed, like, I didn't smoke at the time, but like people were allowed, you know, a certain number of cigarettes a day, they had like a smoking porch you could be on. So like, it really was like, trying to get you to incorporate these new behaviors into your life and kind of they embrace this concept of like giving one thing up at a time, which I mm-hmm. really loved. Um, but I don't think it was as strict as I needed it to be at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, when I got out, I had a lot of tools in my toolkit from treatment. Um, but then I went through a trauma in college and bulimia kind of set in after that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then I went off to uh, the Clarman Center at McLean Hospital in Belmont, Massachusetts. And it was much more clinical there. Like, it was really, like, kick you in the butt. Like, you don't have any options. Mm-hmm. They they took away all of your privileges. All, you know, you just felt like a child, you know? Yeah. Um, you had monitored showers, monitored bathroom visits. All your sharps were taken away. So it was, like, just a, both times were very different. But I, I think I needed different things. <laughs> you know, based on my behaviors. Right. So when you were having the bulimia, it was like a more, uh, you needed more containment maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was kind of wild then, you know, I was smoking cigarettes and drinking and all of these things that weren't a part of my treatment when I was 18. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was just, I need, I think I needed more roles at that time. Yeah. So you were like really rebelling in between, mm-hmm. in between mm-hmm. treatments. Did like when you came back from treatment the first time, did the anorexia subside a little bit? Were you able to kind of get by for a while until the trauma happened? Or was it like kind of right back to the behaviors? You know, it was right back right after I got out, which I think is so common for mm-hmm. people to go, you know, like there you're, you spend three months in this treatment center with all these rules and then you're let out and you go back to what's comfortable for you. Totally. Um, and your eating disorder behaviors are very comfortable if you've lived that way for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, but after that, like, initial dip, um, I think, you know, I was doing okay. Not, I don't think I ever was eating intuitively or, like, fully embraced my shape or size. I was always kind of relying on some sort of exercise or restriction. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't full-blown like it was before. Um, but it really, the, the stress of the trauma that happened later in college, um, just really set off all this other stuff for me. Yeah. Ugh, that is so frustrating. So you kind of had just gotten into this like tentative place of, you know, moving towards recovery and then this happened. Yeah. But you know, I, I think, I don't want to say I loved going through that cause I obviously didn't, Mm-mm. but, um, the combination of the two treatment centers approaches, I think really gave me this like expansive toolkit that I rely on today. You know, it was Mm. this combination of CBT and self-talk and um, journaling and 
crochet and coloring books and all the, you know, all of these um, self-care and psychological tactics that I could use when I felt like I was falling back on old behaviors. And eating disorders aren't, you know, straightforward or clear cut. I definitely still have times when, when I struggle and I need to like kind of remind myself of things that I learned in treatment. Yeah. Um, so I, I feel like it happened for a reason that I was able to experience both styles. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. So you kind of got the, the cognitive behavioral piece from the second treatment center mm-hmm. and the more like self-care nurturing aspects from the first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's not to say that Renfrew, Renfrew had a very strong clinical presence too. Mm-hmm. Um, I just felt like they were more open to these alternative types of, of, treatment and self-care, which I didn't really experience at the, at the other hospital. It was much more like a hospitalization the second time. Gotcha. Yeah. So there wasn't as much alternative therapy they could mm-hmm. offer probably. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So then when you got out of the, out of the hospital program, the second program, how did you start relating to food then? Do you feel like you were on a, a stronger path to recovery or? It was pretty scary. I have to mm-hmm. say getting out um, the second time, I was much more, um, you know, in an adult phase of life. I was 21. I was living off campus. I was trying, I had like six months left of my degree, just like finishing incompletes Mm -hmm. um, that were a result of having to leave for treatment. Um, So it's like, you know, all of these things that I wasn't doing before grocery shopping on my own, preparing meals for myself paying when I went out to eat like Mm -hmm. everything had changed completely on its head as it does when you go from your teenage years to your early 20s right Um, so a lot of the exercises that we used in treatment both times visiting grocery stores um, going to a frozen yogurt shop as a challenge um, you know learning how to make sushi so you could see that there was joy in in creating a meal for yourself Um, all of all of those experiences truly helped me, but nothing prepares you, I don't think, for the real world when you're standing totally terrified in the middle of a grocery store aisle with all these options, not knowing like what you're supposed to do or what you want to do or what your body's telling you that you want to eat. Um, it, it was very paralyzing for a while. I think it took a good year or so for me to kind of like regulate and feel like I was I was getting some sense of normalcy. Yeah. I mean, it is so, it's such a stark transition again from like treatment back to the real world. So Mm -hmm. you had to make all these decisions on your own that were made for you in treatment. Right. Right. Well, and in in growing up. Yeah. A lot of of those decisions are made for you. Totally. That's true. Yeah. So did you like, were you seeing a therapist and a nutritionist or like, did you have like step down care in that time or? You know, it's interesting going out of state for treatment. Um, Mm -hmm. Both times, I found that a lot of the people I was in treatment with were local um, in Florida and in Massachusetts. So Mm -hmm. their partial care or step-down care, whatever you want to call it, was a lot more structured than mine was. So I'll just use Massachusetts as an example. When I was in partial for, it was one or two weeks, I was in a bed and breakfast by myself, whereas other other people would go home to stay with their families. Wow. So it was, it was just very different. And so then it, rather than it being a partial hospitalization, I was like, I would so much rather go home and, and have a team, you know, of, of physicians or therapists or whoever in my hometown and live at home than being in this like lonely bed and breakfast. I know that sounds really depressing. Yeah. So it was, I mean, I just think if, if you're going to a treatment center in your town, your experience might be different. Um, but by the time I came back to Birmingham, um, I, I felt better than I did when I was impartial there. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I was able to live with my parents for a little while, eventually finished my degree, then, you know, got my own apartment. And there were these like very structured steps to like regaining my health and my independence. And right. I still like kind of went wild sometimes with like alcohol and partying and everything. Cause again, that's what I was comfortable with before I left for treatment. Right. Um, but eventually that kind of wound down too. So that didn't become like its own issue, substance no, abuse or anything like that. I didn't feel 
for me, I didn't feel like it mm-hmm. was. For me, the substance abuse felt like it was a um, response to the eating disorder. Mm-hmm. It was like I was just in my untreated anxiety and depression. You know, it was like once I got the depression and anxiety piece treated and was properly medicated, the the eating disorder went, the substance abuse went, and then mm-hmm. the last piece was kind of the relationship with food and intuitive eating and then also the body image piece. Right, right. And those are the two that kind of linger sometimes too, I think. Like those are the things that I have issues with every now and then. Yeah. So what did that look like, learning intuitive eating for you? Uh, well, I mean, it was it was definitely like over the course of, gosh, like five or six years. Um, mm-hmm. I met my husband he's now my husband. I met him in 2011. Mm -hmm. And that was a big game changer for me, not just having a supportive partner, but he is one of the most intuitive eaters I've ever met in my life. Mm. Like when he is hungry, he eats. When he is not hungry, he doesn't eat. Like he doesn't overindulge. When he wants something sweet, he eats something sweet and doesn't feel guilty about it. Like he is just, uh, you know, it's like, total goals for me (laughs) when I when I see it's like that kid mentality that I was talking about earlier he's got that still he finds that joy in everything he eats and he's not going to eat something that he he thinks is gross or doesn't want to just because it's healthy for him that's amazing when people can hold on to that (laughs) you know like it's it's a rare thing in this day and age I think and I think so too yeah so very lucky that he was able to do that and then that you stumbled into a relationship with such a good model of that yeah and maybe it was subconsciously something I was looking for Mm -hmm. you know I know that what something was that was attractive to me about him was that he didn't put pressure on me to look a certain way mm-hmm. um, and really loved it when he saw me getting joy out of something he had cooked for me or when we were out to eat um you know and with exercise too he hates going to the gym like mm-hmm. if it's beautiful outside he's gonna go for a run because it makes him feel good and he wants to be outside mm-hmm. and it's like he he doesn't have these like strict structures. Like I have to fit into my jeans. Therefore I have to go do such and such exercise this many times a week. He just doesn't do that. He does it for the joy of it. God, that's amazing. It is. And it's like totally revolutionized my day to day. I feel like. Um, it's so healing to find someone who can model that stuff for us. Cause I've in my own experience too, like I was in, you know, the throes of an undiagnosed eating disorder and really restrictive and, you know, having a lot of like restrict binge kind of stuff. And it could have gone really far, I think, in that direction mm-hmm. had it not been for this relationship I got into, which was with a guy who was like the first foodie I'd ever known. You know, he like pursued <laughs> yeah. food as a hobby. And I was just like, what is this? And he was just so amazing in so many other ways. And I was like, I have to date this guy and he's mm-hmm. not gonna he's not gonna accept me if he knows all this crazy stuff I'm doing. So I have to like put that on pause while I'm with him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it really helped open up my horizons because we like went to great re- uh, restaurants and you know made good food at home and we're just you know really excited about food together and like that was something that hadn't been in my life for years you know yeah I mean it's it really like for you too I'm sure it was like this total game changer for mm-hmm. me um, yeah. you know he encouraged me to like get in the kitchen and help him with stuff and Um, There's a certain joy, I think, that I feel now when I've worked hard creating a meal that I can enjoy it more. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't stress so much about the decision of what to eat, which was always kind of paralyzing to me. It's like what instead of what do I feel like eating tonight is what do I feel like cooking tonight, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's that's been a, a big changer for me. And I think just in terms of how I feel, I incorporate more greens when I cook myself and that has always been something that like cha- affects my energy in a very big way. Mm-hmm. Um, so if if I can plan ahead, to me, that's a, a huge key for that intuitive eating piece. Right. So having the ingredients on hand to be mm-hmm. able to make whatever you want in a given time. Yep. That's a great tip because I think, you know, people get scared sometimes if they've had like, you know, binge 
urges or if they're just afraid of having lots of food around for whatever reason, like they don't want to have stuff in the house. But I think when you're practicing intuitive eating, it's so important to have things available that you might want at any given time so that you can really be like, what do I want right now? And then it's there. Exactly. And planning for meals too is something that I never did growing up Um, Mm -hmm. or in my, you know, my early twenties, I'm 30 now. And only in the past couple of years have I started going to the grocery store with actual meals in mind. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, you know, and snacks that you would want, but my binge urges, you know, came when I had nothing like as a official meal mm-hmm. to eat and it was like all just odds and ends in the house that's that's when I found that I would I would binge right um, and I think the one rule that I kind of keep for myself I don't, I don't really like a lot of rules these days but the the one rule that I keep for myself is like you know not eating too late because that's always mm. that's always a big trigger for me um, to get into the binge mentality. Mm-hmm. So like not letting too much time go by, you mean, between mm-hmm. between eating? Yeah. Or too late in the day as mm-hmm. well. Like, you know, it, I used to stay up until one or two in the morning and eat stuff that I didn't really want and drink alcohol that I didn't really need. Mm. And now it's like if I can set a healthier bedtime for myself and – kind of avoid those additional binge behaviors. Um, I wake up feeling better the next day and I'm less likely to continue that a negative behavior, you know, for the weeks to come. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. So you're not waking up the following day feeling bad about yourself or guilty that exactly you did something more than you wanted to. Yes. Yes. That makes sense. And then what about like kind of um sort of meal planning or management throughout the day do you kind of keep to a schedule now or do you just are you able to eat when you're hungry and kind of let that guy do it depends I work from home so that's changed Mm -hmm. a lot of my um the ways that I plan I used to like I think I used to plan a lot more just because my office was so far away from home Mm -hmm. that I really had no choice but to plan um but now that I'm working from home you know In the morning, um, I generally do a green smoothie in addition to some other type of breakfast, you know, with Mm -hmm. coffee and water and all that. Um, But the green smoothie for me is a way to kind of boost my energy. I used to have a really bad habit of waking up, getting on my laptop, work, 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 work. And then all of a sudden, two o'clock runs around, and I realize that the only thing I've had all day is coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a huge trigger for me. Yeah, I bet. You know, it's like your blood sugar's all messed up. Um, totally. All, all you want to do is binge at that point. Right, because you've gotten your blood sugar so low that to get it back into the normal range, you really have to like spike it with something. Right. So I, I wa- I'm not a big breakfast eater, so I feel like the green smoothie has been a great way for me to get something in my system mm-hmm. so that I, I don't crash later. Yeah, that's um, a good tip. And then lunch and dinner is kind of like when I'm hungry, mm-hmm. you know, Um but I, I also do Blue Apron, so that helps me at least for three meals a week, um, helps me kind of plan out what I'm going to eat. Yeah, that's a nice thing to have on hand, too. It seems mm-hmm. like it just makes it a lot easier to get things done. Yeah, it's my husband, um, ironically, is a restaurant um, professional. Wow. Um, yeah. Oh, so, that's so interesting. I mean, yeah, you talk about foodie. He's like – He's chosen that as his career too, mm-hmm. um, but he's not home most most nights for dinner. So I kind of have to fend for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, talk about like really trusting yourself after an eating disorder. Like, all of a sudden I'm alone. You know, every yeah. night with you know, if I wanted to get away with something eating disorder related, I totally could because mm-hmm. there's nobody here. Um, but I think I've really like kind of upheld this promise to myself to like not let that happen because mm. the eating disorder has never been a part of my relationship with him or my marriage. And I kind of, you know, I just have this internal vow that I like don't want that ugliness to enter into what we have and the life that we have. Oh, that's amazing. That's really powerful to keep keep it at bay. Yeah. And it doesn't always work. <laughs> you uh-huh. know, like we're all imperfect. But um but I think just like say even a little self-talk saying to yourself, okay, you're going to be at home by yourself for dinner time most of the week. Like how are you going to handle this? Mm-hmm. You've got all these goals, 
all these things you want to achieve. And when the eating disorder was a part of it and you weren't eating, you didn't achieve any of that. You know, mm-hmm. you ended up with all your privileges taken away. Yeah, so. you really sort of turn into this like child or prisoner almost when you're mm-hmm. in that place. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's really good, too, to be able to, like, talk yourself through it in terms of your values and your goals because, like, mm-hmm. those things are so taken away by the eating disorder. And when you can really see it clearly and reflect on, like, this is all that I have and I don't want to lose it, I think it makes it a lot easier. I think it can be tough sometimes when, you know, when either people who are in the throes of an eating disorder kind of lose sight of that mm. or when things are not going that great and like life doesn't seem all that, you know, all that great anyway. So, well, like, but you know, like I remember not believing that that was going to be true a hundred percent and life isn't, you know, whether or not you have an eating disorder, life's not always going to be like sunshine and roses, you no, know, totally. but, um, I had one counselor at, um, Renfrew that was recovered herself. And when she told me that she was recovered, I literally could not believe that she used to be sick because she was so beautiful and so curvy and her hair was like healthy and her nails were healthy and she was like just full of life. Right. Mm. And I could never, I like just remember not being able to believe that she was once sick. And she was like, there will be a time in your life when you don't think about food 24 seven. And I did like cried and didn't believe her at mm. that moment in time. And it's like, now I have that. And it's a lot of freaking hard work. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, I, I like to talk to people who are kind of in the throes of it often to tell them like, you know, your life may suck now and you might be in the middle of it, but like that it's not forever. Yeah. I think that's such a valuable message. And that's definitely one of the reasons I do the podcast is because mm-hmm. I feel like to spread that message and to be like, I'm a recovered person and now a professional in this field. And I'm talking to people who have recovery stories of their own, like, you know, we're all living our lives and doing cool things. And that mm-hmm. would never have been possible if we had given up, you know? Oh, yeah. Your eating disorder is like this, like, awful friend that you, like, can't oh, let go yeah. of that, like, steals all the attention all the time. Totally. You know? Frenemy. Um, Frenemy number one. <laughs> I know. But once you let go of it or even partially let go of it, you can just let a lot of good into your life where that used to be. Absolutely. Yeah, I know. And it's, I think a lot of people go through sort of a winding path with it where they do mm-hmm. partially let go and, you know, it's not all or nothing. It's not like you flip a switch and it's gone, right? So it's, mm-hmm. it's a process. But if you kind of keep putting one foot in front of the other and winding your way through, you eventually can get to a totally recovered place. And that's amazing. That's right. Yeah. And it's, and it's maintenance too. You know, it's like Mm -hmm. sometimes I go to, I go to a therapist once a week and sometimes I go to her and I'm like, I literally have nothing to talk to you about. (laughs) You know, I'm like sitting across from her going, this is going to be the most boring hour of your life. Mm -hmm. Um, I went to, it's like, you know, I, I woke up, I had coffee, my dog's cute, you know, (laughs) but then there's like other weeks where like, I've got some serious body hatred going on, you Mm -hmm. know? Um, and I've really got to work with her on some steps and like journaling and like really like building that toolkit back up again. Yeah, absolutely. So it's like, it's not wasted because there's still work to do. Mm-hmm. That maintenance is important. And yeah, so tell me about the body image stuff. Cause that's kind of why you started your website, right? Yeah. So, uh, so many, um, eating disorder professionals over the years have told me that body image was the last thing, mm-hmm. kind of last to fall into place with eating disorder recovery. And after I met my husband um, and started to really let go of the eating disorder, I realized how true that that was. It was just, you know, I would wake up some mornings and my health would be on point and my balance with exercise and food would be on point. I'd had this great relationship and everything seemed great. And I would look down at my thighs and just like want to die, you know? And it's like, how is this holding me up when I've got this great life around me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started the blog as kind of like this personal outlet. And like, I was like, well, you know, if one person reads this, then cool, you know, but it was like helping me kind of get out some of my feelings as I, as I worked through this, like self-loathing that I felt a lot of days. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I work in the media and I do media appearances now and it's especially hard to be curvier and have a 
quote unquote bigger figure mm-hmm. when you know you're going to get your hair and makeup done and you're going to appear on camera and everybody you know everybody that's interviewing you is like a size whatever right. that's like you know a fourth of how you feel that you look you yeah. know um so now i've invited a bunch of writers and other whether they're recovered or eating disorder professionals to write for the blog it's called body boop mm-hmm. uh, love that name <laughs> <laughs> um but you know it's it's been great to kind of gather perspective so i i it started as something like me 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 telling my story over and over again and now it's just like i feel like this aggregation of all these beautiful voices um of people that struggle a lot mm-hmm. um and i've had people write about you know their eating disorder in relation to diabetes or bipolar disorder or you know there are so many variations of eating disorder um, binge non-purging, you right. know, things that you don't hear about in the mainstream media that I really wanted to call attention to and not in a negative way, kind of give a hopeful view of it and yeah. all the while not using those numbers, those weights, those calories, anything that could be triggering to somebody who was reading. I wanted like a, a truly um, dedicated recovery resource for people. That's so valuable. And I think something that people don't always realize when they first start chronicling this stuff, like when, you know, bloggers first start a blog, if they're still recovering. And I know even for me, when I started the podcast back in 2013, like my body image stuff was ongoing. I had stopped Mm -hmm. using behaviors, but I was still really struggling with the body image and still kind of coming to terms with my history of having an eating disorder. And I didn't even realize it at first, like how triggering some of the things I was putting out there could be. So it's like, you know, kind of a learning curve, I think, to to get through that for a lot of people. But it sounds like you had that awareness from the beginning, just having gone through what you did. Well, yeah, I agree with you completely. But, you know, I think I waited almost to start the mm-hmm. website until I felt like I was in a better place with it, um, where I could talk about like the intermittent struggles, but I wasn't actively in my eating disorder. Right. Um, you know, I think I think I maybe could have started it a couple years ago, but the content wouldn't have been as valuable. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in mainstream media, too, something that bugs me when I'm sharing articles is that, you know, it'll be this amazing article about somebody who's recovered. And then the headline and the picture will be like the most triggering things oh, anybody's ever put out there. And I understand news organizations have, like, different people working on different things. Mm -hmm. But, like, gosh, that bugs me Um, when I can't share something because it's, like, this rail-thin woman in the image. I know. I really struggle with that, too, like, on social media because I don't want to be sharing and spreading things that are going to trigger people. But then Mm -hmm. it's really hard to find mainstream media coverage of eating disorders that's not – you know, illustrated with these terrible stock images or that uses numbers and weights. And, you know, I mean, I feel like a lot of the sort of biggest um, or it's more like tabloidy too, but the, you know, the real large media outlets online that share a lot of this stuff like Mm -hmm. can be so triggering in terms of like, you know, she was just X pounds and, you know, these horrible pictures. Oh my gosh, it makes me cry. Yeah. I know. It's really... Because I I think they just don't – and, you know, there is a lot of information out there about responsible reporting on eating Mm -hmm. disorders. If you just look around a little bit, you find it very easily on, like, the National Eating Disorders Association website and lots of other places. But, like, I feel like the the journalists who write about this stuff, A, maybe don't really bother to to think about that, and B, maybe don't – you know, it's like the sort of shock value of these – statistics and details maybe outweigh the responsibility of like protecting people from them so I know often the response I get when I comment on social media about something being triggering is that everybody's triggers are different and that's frustrating to me (laughs) because I agree with that I understand that everybody's triggers are different but you can't tell me that somebody who is like remarkably underweight and clearly in the middle of an eating disorder with a measuring tape around <laughs> the waist is not triggering right. to somebody in an eating disorder, 
you know, world. You can't tell me that. <laughs> I know, exactly. And some, yeah, everybody's triggers are different, but there are certain pretty universal triggers out exactly. there. Like, you know, that kind of image or, you know, talking about how a person lost a certain amount of weight. It's like if you have any sort of active eating disorder going on in your brain, of course, it's going to look to that and be like, ooh, what if I did that? Oh Maybe God. I could lose yes. that many pounds, you know? And it's it's so so detrimental. And also I've been thinking a lot about this lately that like the portrayal of eating disorders as all sort of one way, there's a lot of like depictions of extreme anorexia out there in the mainstream. And that's actually such a minor fraction of all the eating disorders that exist. You know, it's yes. anorexia is the smallest percentage of, of eating disorders. So it, it really makes people think, and I know I thought this when I was in my eating disorder, which was more like eating disorder not otherwise specified at the time you know like I was like well I don't have an eating disorder because I don't look like that or I don't do that like my stuff about food is just my weird you know I'm just weird and terrible and broken but I don't have an eating disorder I just am bad you know and it's like if I had been able to put a name to it at the time and been like no actually I the stuff that I'm struggling with is very universal to this group of people that share my affliction and I'm not alone and I'm not broken and bad I just need to get help for an eating disorder like I think that would have been extremely helpful on that anybody of any weight can have an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. You can be any size with an eating disorder. And I don't even think I understood that before I went to treatment the first time. And then my first two roommates, one was a woman. She was probably in her 30s or 40s. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was 18. Oh. Um, so, you know, I'm seeing this woman in a different life stage. She was totally normal sized and had been struggling with bulimia clearly enough to end up in a treatment center. Right. You know, and then my second roommate there was a plus size woman who was um, binging, non-purging. Mm-hmm. And so it was like I, all of a sudden, even I didn't know how many eating disorders, types of eating disorders were out there. And I had these two wonderful women working, beautiful, wonderful women working so hard on themselves that didn't look like everything I read about or mm-hmm. everything that my doctor even told me about. Right. You know? Yeah, I know. That's so powerful when you when you discover that like – it doesn't have to look a certain way or be a certain shape or size, right? Mm-hmm. It's, and it's interesting too how doctors can really fan the flames of that. Mm-hmm. Did you did you find when you were first trying to get help that like there was any sort of talk of, well, your weight, you know, doesn't qualify you for this or that or those sorts of things? Well, I, <laughs> you know, I could talk about this for like hours. Oh yeah, um, but. Um, to be more brief, when I was um, going to my doctor's office in Birmingham for the first time, the focus was so on the scale. Mm. And now that I think back on it, I'm like, yes, my anorexia specifically, they needed to check on my weight. I get that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wish that somebody had talked to me more about my vital signs, you know, that like yeah. my heart rate was dangerously low or what were the consequences of my blood pressure you know, being yeah. that low. Um, that's what I think would have, at, at you know, take away all the other information, like scared me into getting help and working harder. Right. You know? Um, and then, you know, in insurance companies, this was pre-Obamacare. This is really a topic that I could like go on and on mm, about. But yes. I was denied over and over and over again after I got out of treatment oh. for health insurance. You know, wow. Because um, I was trying to live independently of my mom's plan, and this was before I think twenty six is the limit now. It was mm-hmm. way before that. You know, I was I was out of college. You know, out of luck. Wow. Um, oh. and still I'm denied life insurance. Really? My I got out of treatment the last time in two thousand seven, so mm-hmm. it's been nine years, and um, you know, I'm married. I am the breadwinner in the house, and if something were to happen to me, I would want my husband to have a comfortable life, and I cannot get even the most basic coverage because of my eating disorder history. Wow. I had no idea that that was, that was a way that they could deny you life insurance coverage. Mm-hmm. Wow. It's not, it's not covered under Obamacare. Life insurance isn't. And right. because I've sought treatment and taken antidepressants, they see that as, you know, actively needing help. Right. As a risk that you could 
need to use your insurance, basically. Which is like, we should be like applauding the people who are doing the work and Mm -hmm. taking medication if they need it. You know, they're probably the least likely to relapse. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, the people who struggle in silence and don't ask for help are much more at risk. Mm -hmm. So it's just very backwards with with coverage and the focus on weight and yeah, I don't know. I know many people too, who have been denied treatment because of weight related issues. Me too. Um, it's just shocking. So many people have been denied treatment, you know, a cut when their weight was reached a certain threshold Mm -hmm. or not let into the treatment center in the first place because their weight wasn't low enough or like had a doctor tell them when they were actively in their eating disorder, well, your weight's okay. Don't lose any. I mean, actually this happened to me where I, you know, doctor said, don't lose any more weight, but you're okay here. You know? Yeah. And it's like, yeah, that just is so undermining to, you know, I mean, I also had a therapist tell me like I, when I was first starting to struggle and people in my family were noticing and sitting, you know, concerned about me I said yeah you know my my parents think I'm not eating enough and you know kind of trying to like dangle a little carrot to see if my therapist would Mm -hmm. draw me out a little bit because I kind of wanted some help with it and she said you know you're not like a slight little person though so (gasps) you know I feel like you're not too thin and it was just it was oh it was so devastating and so of course like You know, I put that all the desire to talk about it just went way underground. And I was like, I am not going to, you know, open up to this, open up to you about this again. Oh, my God. And also sort of this sense of rebellion, like, I'll show you who's not thin enough. You know, there was a little bit of that, too. Like, you know, screw you, lady. Like, come on, I'm, I'm struggling. It doesn't matter what I look like, you know? When I feel like those comments from professionals, like, sadly, like, stay with you the most. Like, I, I, when I was first hospitalized when I was 14, um, you know, clearly was struggling with anorexia, was underweight, like, was woken up at, like, 4 o'clock in the morning to get my vitals and my weight checked, like, mm-hmm. every day while I was there. And one morning, this nurse came in and she pulled the covers over my legs and she was like, tell, she was giving me a compliment, but she said, oh, you've got those beautiful big legs. <gasps> oh. And, and she didn't, probably didn't even know what I was in the hospital for. Oh my God. Um, and she was, she thought she was giving me, you know, a huge compliment. Yeah. But in my mind, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm not doing enough. Right. Um, <laughs> oh. So like... That's another topic I could go on and on about is just like, you know, these doctors and nurses and other physicians are paying so much money for their education. Like, please, for the love of God, have eating disorder education be a part of that process. Absolutely. Rather than one, maybe one lecture in a four-year program or exactly. something. Yes. I know. It's crazy. It's it's really upsetting how few people get diagnosed by their primary care providers or even noticed or, you know, have any sort of attention paid to their eating issues when, you know, that's the first treatment setting most people and maybe only treatment setting people are in, you know? Yep. And they could be doing so much more. Exactly. It's also crazy that, you know, eating disorders are thought to be this this small niche and there's not a lot of research money given towards research in eating disorders, but actually like, you know, there's significantly more people struggle with eating disorders and also like subclinical disordered eating than, you know, a lot of the other mental illnesses that get the big funding. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and as a part of my business too, like something that was really important to me was you know, a portion of my proceeds going to mm-hmm. research and to treatment. You know, some chari- some of the charities I support, like Project Heal, you know, the money goes to scholarship funds to pay for people to go to treatment. That's amazing. Um, I love the work they do. Me too. Um, but the National Association of Anorexia Nervosa and Associate Disorders, ANAD, and mm-hmm. then um, NADA as well, you know, I – donate 10% of everything I do, you know, merchandise, events, whatever, um, to, 
to their causes because it's like, yeah, I can I can preach all day long about positive Im- body image and have people write about the recovery stories, but like at the end of the day, I'm not a clinician, and for mm-hmm. a good reason because I didn't think I could handle working with an eating disorder population for my own protection. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I so want to support research and. You know, even the opening of new treatment centers. I went to ANAD's um, annual conference this year, and I about fell down crying when I saw Birmingham, Alabama, on one of the treatment center signs. Oh, that's awesome. You know, because now they've got two locations in my hometown, and there was nothing when I lived there. Wow. Um, So, you know, it's like I can do all of this stuff. I can, like, promote good vibes and, Mm -hmm. you know, positive body love, but, like, we have got to be working towards insurance reform and um, more eating disorder research so that we can identify the problems kind of before they start. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, early intervention is one of the biggest keys to recovery for this mm-hmm. stuff. It's It gets harder and harder. Not that it's impossible because there are many people who've struggled for years or decades who recover, but it's much harder to right. get over that hurdle once it's been there for so long. Right. I know ANAD does a lot of um, in-school education, and that's just, like, so awesome. Mm-hmm. Like, even if I sell one T-shirt one month and I send them a check for, like, <laughs> you know, for, like, $7 or whatever it is. Right. You know, I'm so happy that that $7 is going to, like, maybe help a 14-year-old girl who's in the same shoes I was in. You know, that day I got the stomach flu. Right. Um, but... That's brilliant. Um, I love that part of your business. It's it's really it's inspiring to me too. I'm like thinking that I need to probably do something similar. Yeah. Well, and you know, I've worked for nonprofits before and God forbid I end up with an idea that was mine and then there's a board making decisions for me like mm-hmm. I support so many nonprofits for me that model was like it was not a fit for me. Mm. Um but the way I can give back is donate a percentage of everything I do. And like, if I'm wildly successful in the future, 10% is going to be a lot. Totally. That's going to make a huge difference. Yeah. Right. So tell us a little more about like your company and what you guys do. Um, so aside from the blog, we've just started body image workshops, which are, have been really fun. Um, we did the first one in um, November of last year in Chicago, and um, we had a small group. It was like 15, um, mostly women, and a lot of college students that were referred by their therapists. Mm. Um, and I basically hire um, experts, a variety of experts, um, either eating sort of recovery related or body image related to come in, and we do yoga, meditation, um, and take in various forms of presentations. Um, so the one that's coming up soon, we've got a yoga instructor, a nutrition counselor who's also recovered herself, awesome. um, and then an art therapist who um, works at one of the treatment centers here in Chicago. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, so it's all like I the professionals I bring into the room are so familiar with the population. Often they're recovered themselves. You know, the there's n- no triggering content. I really mm-hmm. want like a safe room of people who have all different relationships with food and exercise, all different body types, ages, genders, sexualities. Um, and, you know, the more of these I do, the more professionals I'd like to bring in that kind of represent those different segments of the eating disorder population. Yeah, it's so valuable for people to be seen or to or to feel like they they see models of themselves in, you know, the professionals community and recovered community. I think that's so healing. Right. And you know, starting out, I feel like right now it's mostly young women mm-hmm. uh, that are attending these events. And if that's who needs it, great. Like that's kind of like my attitude is like if you need it, come on. Right. Um, if somebody messages me and they're like, I can't afford to come to your workshop, I'm like, let's sign you up as a volunteer. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I want people in the room. I want people to be taken in this content because, like, I would have given anything for this. Oh, yeah. Sick. No, it's amazing. So, yeah, what are th- some of the things you address in the body image workshops then? Um, it, you know, it really depends on the professionals that come in, but we kind of vary the the day with, like, 
something more active and something seated and quiet, something mm-hmm. something seated and quiet to give people kind of like a time to digest because a lot of times a lot of emotion comes out of what we discuss. Mm-hmm. Um, last workshop we were at, we talked about like self-love and in our meditation and forgiving yourself and forgiving others who may have hurt you. Mm-hmm. And there were tears in the room, um, myself included, because it like when you're talking about stuff deep down, I mean, it just, even if you're in a room of strangers, sometimes you can't help yourself. Oh, yeah. Um, so I really like, I don't want to rush the agenda ever. Um, but the yoga is great to kind of start out the day. Then we have like, we'll have a spread of food. And I've often sent out surveys to attendees like, are there any triggering foods that I should avoid mm. when I order catering? Um, so that's really helpful for me too, you know? Yeah, um, that's good. Usually try to stay away from things that are traditionally fear foods, mm-hmm. um, like, you know, carb heavy or greasy Mm-hmm. Um, do something that skews more healthy. Um, and then we do a snack too. So people who are on meal plans can kind of stay in line with their meal plan. That's awesome. Um, yeah. So, um, we talk about a variety of topics though. So we had somebody from the awakening center last time, um, present on the history of body image and kind mm-hmm. of like exploring perceptions of what body image even means. Um, and where it came from, like, as women were dressing differently as the decades went on. Oh, that's um, cool. So that was kind of cool. And then exploring, like, what words, you know, what positive and negative words you carry with you during your day um, that describe the way you think you look. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and really using some some self-talk tactics to to challenge those negative thoughts and maybe turn those around, like, real time. It takes practice, but eventually turn those negative thoughts around real time during your day. Right. Oh, that's really awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, every professional that presents, you know, has has a different perspective. And I find that truly valuable that I, you know, m- much like the combination of treatment centers that I went to, it's like people can take these pieces of advice and put them into this toolkit for themselves that's personalized. Yeah, that's why I love talking about this stuff so much is because like everybody has a different way of coming to the material and and of, you know, connecting with different people delivering it. So like, Mm -hmm. you know, I could say something that resonates with one person, you could say something that resonates with another, you know, people Mm -hmm. can take stuff from everybody who talks about these issues and kind of cobble together their own special blend of recovery stuff. So... That's right. Yeah. I mean, I even felt like my mind was opened the last worship because I participate in everything too. Um, And one of the girls that was in attendance at the last workshop brought up um, cultural norms with your body. Mm. She was from, I can't remember what her background was, but you know, I've got a Middle Eastern background. And so like these curves and these legs and these hips and these thighs are like often, you know, signs of being beautiful and are Mm. valued. And when you hate it and you've got, like, your your culture telling you that it's great, but you, like, are loathing yourself every day, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. You know, how do you kind of, like, resolve that internal conflict from what you're hearing and what your expectations of yourself are? That's really interesting. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, it is, I bet, such a sort of cultural conflict to come into, you know, to have to be thinking about your body in those terms. Like, these two oh, yeah. polar opposites, really. Yeah, I've got like great aunts and uncles that would be like, why on earth would you ever starve yourself? You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, if you have this shape naturally, what, why on earth would you try to force that to go away? Right. You no. Know? How do you respond to that now versus before? Like, well, you know, it's funny. I think as I've gotten older and I've kind of embraced my curves, the people, my family particularly knows about my eating disorder history. So like, whereas maybe like I would have gotten a comment like, Oh, you've put on weight. Mm. (laughs) Uh, Now it's like, you look really healthy Mm. and it's like such a positive shift. I'm like, I, you know, I really hope that people can talk to others in that way, regardless of their health history. Mm -hmm. You know, like I love being told that I look healthy because I feel healthy. Yeah. Um, and but, that's probably a, a wonderful shift from before, too, because I know, 
I mean, when I was in my eating disorder or starting to recover, but the body image wasn't in line yet, you know, people told me I looked healthy. I was like, that means I look fat. Screw you. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, totally. When people are like, you look so different. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's like, right. You know, Um, no, I mean, my family has been very supportive and I often get, um, you know, Facebook messages from people who aren't familiar with eating disorders mm-hmm. um, who will just ask me general questions. And that's an opportunity where I'm like, gosh, I wonder if these questions that I'm answering right now will impact how I talk to somebody later. Mm, you yeah. know, I, that's my hope at least. Um, you know, it's often maybe men that ha- a man that hasn't ever encountered any problem like that or hasn't had a daughter or sister, or, mm-hmm. you know, somebody who experienced it going, well, I didn't even know that was a thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. I know. And if you can open people's eyes to that and help them see what's going on around them or how they're affecting the people in their lives, like that can really change the course of someone's life. Well, and you're doing that too through the podcast, you know, it's like, if people who who have these perspectives and these healthy attitudes can can talk to even the people who aren't aware, like that's that's such a positive in my mind. Yeah. Well, thank you. I know that's what I'm trying to do with it is just mm-hmm. raise awareness and, you know, really help people see all sides of this recovery process, you know, mm-hmm. and and just explore their own relationships to food too. Cause I think it's, you know, it's on such a spectrum, right? It's like can be completely in an eating disorder or you can be, you know, like your husband, the, the intuitive oh. eater who's never had a problem. <laughs> but, jealous. <laughs> I know, right? But most of us have existed somewhere in between those poles, mm-hmm. you know, for a lot of our lives. So, you know, there's always, I think, room for improvement or room to, to just explore a little more. I think so too. Well, and even the man that's never experienced an eating disorder, I can tell you I've spoken to many men who move into their 30s and their bodies start changing Mm -hmm. and there is a body image conversation that goes on there. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's so interesting and, and, you know, the way that eating disorders are manifesting in guys is so Mm -hmm. different and that's like a whole other conversation, but it is (laughs) starting to explode, especially among younger men now with the pressures they face. So. I think, yeah, sort of helping educate. And that's one thing I want to do more with the podcast is get more guys on here to tell their story. Because I think, you know, it's, it's unfortunate, but a lot of women are sort of like at the forefront. I mean, it's great, but you know, women are sort of the leaders in this movement to a large extent. I think it's easier for women to talk about this stuff and maybe more women have gotten treatment and, and moved past these things. So um, you know, there's more women that are able to speak to these issues, but I think more and more guys are coming out and, and starting to speak out about this stuff too. So I know I read an amazing article the other day about a police, a male police officer who hid his eating disorder from his colleagues for years. Um, and he would, I thought it was so valuable because he was explaining just the, the physical, um, nature of anorexia that a lot of times when you don't eat, you feel better. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the shift in endorphins and just chemically, mm-hmm. you know, you feel better. That was like man or woman seeing that in an article was like, oh my gosh, he understands, mm-hmm. you know, like that's exactly how I used to feel. Right. Um, but yeah, my goal too is to like try to get more, more guys writing for the blog, more guys attending these workshops. I think mm-hmm. it's really valuable. That's awesome. Yeah, well, I'm so glad for the work you do. And I'm so glad you came on the podcast to share it. So thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. So that's our show. Thanks again so much to our guest for being here and to you guys for listening. We'll be back again in two weeks with another brand new episode. So be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Android or whatever your favorite podcast app is if you haven't done so already. Meanwhile, I'd love to stay in touch with you online. The best way is by email. So if you join my email VIP list, you'll get exclusive tips about intuitive eating and body positivity and updates about all my work as well as new episodes of the podcast. So if you go to christyharrison.com slash email, you can sign up there. That's christyharrison.com slash email. And I would love to have you guys all on my VIP list. And then you can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We're at Food Psych on Facebook and Food Psych Pod on Twitter. And then I am also on Instagram, just me this time. I don't have a separate account for the podcast, but I'm on Instagram at Christy Harrison and the first I is a one. 
The music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL, and the track is called Food, used under the Creative Commons license. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay psyched. Stupid or scared, no work in the kitchen now. Who put you there in that perfect position now? Who want your food, and you ain't really beat. Have you ever went over your friend?